Well, as you're making your way back to your seats, you can go ahead and turn into a Bible to the second chapter of Acts. Again, thank you to our worship team for so faithfully leading us before the throne this morning. But again, as we uh, transition to God's Word, we are in Acts chapter 2. And we'll be reading verses 42 through 47. They're not printed this morning in the bulletin, but there are a few Bibles in front of you, should you need one. Again, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, it says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is the early gathering of the Christians. Remember, this is the, the birth narrative, really, of the church, the conception of the church after the resurrection, after the ascension of Jesus. So that's the they being spoken of here. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple, together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, once again, we come before you and we're grateful that you are the God who speaks. That, Lord, you haven't left us alone in this life or in this world uh, to wonder or, or to wander even our own way, but you have revealed yourself to us. You have come down in the person of Christ Jesus, that word who became flesh. And Lord, we can read about his ministry, we can read about your mighty works through him, we can read in that written word, the scriptures, preserved and passed on for us. And so Father, we ask that once again you would speak to us through this, your word, through the power of your spirit, and that in speaking to us through your word, we would see the Son we would see Jesus, that written word, high and lifted up. That word who became flesh, high and lifted up. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. The question before us uh, this morning, particularly in these verses, is what marks the true church? What defines, what marks, what delineates the true church? Again, regardless of, of size, regardless of denomination, regardless of historical time period, what marks the church? Because if you think about it, the church can be found in many different places, can it not? The church can be found in many different um, versions or manifestations. There are churches that meet in, in towering cathedrals with beautiful stained glass and ornate sanctuaries, but there are also churches that meet in the living rooms of houses. There are churches with multiple campuses and thousands of members, but there are also those small country churches where there are perhaps more uh, pews than people. There are churches in, in warehouses with you know, big bands, and yet there are churches again in those cathedrals with perhaps these reverent 
choirs. There are churches uh, where pastors wear robes. There are churches where pastors wear suits. There are churches where pastors wear t-shirt and jeans. There are churches in many different uh, versions or, or manifestations. There are churches that meet on Saturdays, nights, right? There are churches that meet on Sunday mornings. There are churches that meet, again, in houses, buildings of all kinds. So again, what marks the church? What marks the true church? Well, the answer is found for us in many different ways through the Scripture, but it's found again for us in these verses this morning, verses 42 through 47 of the second chapter of Acts. And the way we can think about it is, and this is never a perfect analogy, so don't, don't, you know, don't get too upset, okay? But uh, think of your favorite franchised restaurant, okay? Now, again, the church is not a franchise. Don't, don't go there, okay? It's not a business. It's not a corporation. Don't go there, all right? But think of your favorite franchised restaurant, whatever that might be. You can go to that restaurant, more than likely, to any place in the country, any city, right, any exit off of the interstate, and it might have local flair. It might have uh, things that put it in its specific context or its specific location. It might even say things like, welcome to your Lake Worth, fill in the blank, right? And there are things that, again, can customize it and can can contextualize it, But these franchised restaurants, while they might be free to change some of those things, the decorum, the presentation, and so forth, they cannot change the menu, right? They cannot change change what's offered. And the same thing is true for church. Again, we can go to different places in our country, even different places in our city, different manifestations and versions of church and find context and customization, but some things should always remain the same. The main things should remain the main things. And again, that's what we begin to see here in Acts chapter 2 as we read of the birth of the church. What did it look like when it first started? And what should it continue to look like today? That's a great question to ask for yourself, too. Because you might be someone here who is seasonal, and you go back home for a certain part of the year and attend a different church. Or you might be someone who, you know, relocates eventually and has to find a new church. You might be someone here this morning that has kids that are going to go off to college, and they ask you, what kind of church should they look for? So again, the question is always relevant. What marks the true church? And the defining marks that we see here in Acts 2 really orbit around three things. That again, regardless of size or location or musical expression or or pastoral attire, the church should have these three things, and the three things are this. The first is it should have apostolic teaching. Apostolic teaching. The second thing it should have is prayer and sacrament. Prayer and sacrament. And the third thing it should have is fellowship and care. Apostolic teaching, prayer and sacrament, and fellowship and care. So let's look at those just briefly. What does it look like for a church to be devoted? That's the word that's being used here, verse 42. What does it look like for a church to be devoted to the teaching of the apostles? Well, again, if you go back to that kind of franchise illustration, it means that the church in its day, the church in its location, has a lot of leeway in its expressions has a lot of leeway in its formatting. For instance, there's nothing explicitly in the New Testament that talks about musical style. 
There's no prescription for musical style in the church given in the New Testament. So we're free in that regard. We're free to use different instruments, different expressions of music, again, as long as the content and the message is God-honoring. The New Testament also doesn't speak explicitly to, again, like what we should wear to church or the kind of building it should be in or what the pastor is wearing or the sanctuary layout or even the, the service times, right? Those things, again, there's, there's freedom of expression. There's freedom of formatting. We're free to express church in our specific context and culture. But what we aren't free to change, what we aren't free to alter or abandon is the message. The message. The message on which the church rests and revolves, which is obviously the gospel message as it was first proclaimed by the apostles, as it was first witnessed uh, by the apostles, attested to by the apostles. Again, that perfect law-keeping life of Christ Jesus that they themselves were eyewitnesses to. That perfect atoning death on the cross that, again, they were eyewitnesses to. And then again, his perfect and triumphant resurrection from the grave that indicated that he indeed was the Lord and Messiah who had been given for the salvation of men. You see, the apostles, they witnessed this with their own eyes, and then they preserved those realities and what they meant, and they preserved that message down now to posterity. And they first, of course, preserved it orally, just oral tradition. It was passed from one to another. In fact, in the early church, it was very, very uh, um, intentional that the apostles would pass on the deposit of the faith to those who would outlast them, but then those who would outlast them had to actually know the apostles firsthand. And again, over time, that begins to break down. So contrary to kind of some of what our Catholic brothers and sisters believe, there's this direct line, you know, of apostolic succession to say like the Pope. We would say, no, it's not, it's not really how it worked. You know, kind of history tells a different story. But at first, that was the attempt. Why? Because the message has to be preserved in its, in its purity and its entirety from the apostles themselves, who, who again witnessed it and passed it on first through, through oral tradition and oral teaching until the scriptures themselves preserved it in writing for us, now for all of time. And we can hold those scriptures again here in our hands. Well, it's that message then that remains, and it remains unalterable and unchangeable, and it remains the main course, if you will, that we are called to serve each and every Sunday. The main course. Again, we can change layout, we can change service times, we can change music, we can change church logos and names, and all that kind of stuff, but we can't change the message. We can't change the main course that is offered each and every Sunday because if we do, then what happens? The church is no longer a church, right? And we've all perhaps seen that happen in churches that we've been in previously. We can see maybe you know, family members in churches like that. We've experienced kind of how that can work where when you begin to change the main thing and, and the main offering, the church over time then devolves into just another kind of club, Right? a social club, a country club, perhaps even a benevolent club, but one then that begins to look more and more like the clubs and the, and, the, and the gatherings of people we can find in the world and not the place where, again, the supernatural message of salvation for all humanity is found and preached and, and built upon. 
And so again, we then remain connected here at Lake Osborne even to the original church in Acts. Again, not through some kind of apostolic succession that we can map out and we can chart out, but we remain connected to the apostolic church through the message we proclaim. It's the same message that the apostles themselves were proclaiming from day one. And so even my job as a pastor, you know, if I ever start giving you more of my opinions or my hobby horses than I do the gospel message, you've got to hold me accountable, right? That's, that's your job, too, to hold me accountable. Because, again, this is what the church must always revolve around, the apostolic message, the once and for all message delivered to the saints uh, through Christ Jesus and then now through his followers that come after. So, again, the apostolic teaching. But the second reality we see here, the second mark of the church, is that of prayer and sacrament. Prayer and sacrament. So again, wherever the church gathers, whether it's a house church, whether it's a a, a multi-site church, whether it's a warehouse church or a cathedral church, what should accompany the message? What should accompany the preaching of the gospel? And the answer here is it should be accompanied by prayer and and sacrament, specifically in this case, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Prayer and sacrament. So let's just consider those again. So first, you know, prayer here speaks of a couple things, if you notice. There's a devotional component, what I would call a devotional component, and then there is a dependent component. A devotional component and a dependent component of the prayer that we see here in the early part Um, of Acts. And we say devotional because when Luke writes these verses, if you notice, when he says the people are devoting themselves to, quote, the prayers, he is thinking and referring to the regular prayers of the Jewish people as they orbited around the temple. The prayers that would be offered in the morning, in the evening, the prayers that kind of worked their way into the daily rhythms of Hebrew life, there was this regularity and this devotional, kind of even regimented, if you will, uh, quality to those prayers and that way of life. And that's interesting because if you think about it then, what we see here is that the apostles themselves and the early Christians didn't think of themselves as necessarily starting a new religion, but rather they still kind of orbited within the the temple life, within the Jewish life, but they saw themselves rather as the fulfillment of all the previous Jewish hopes, all the previous hopes of the Old Testament. And that's why then when they're praying, they're still observing, if you will, this kind of temple schedule and this temple regularity. Because again, they saw themselves as grasping the fullness of all the Old Testament and all the Old Covenant and all the hopes of Israel spoke to. The coming and the arrival of the Messiah, the coming and the arrival of the Anointed One. And how this actually played out is still a matter of kind of great debate. Because if you notice, in Acts, it doesn't just feature Jewish believers and Jewish converts, but it also features Gentile converts, right? Think of how the, the book started. They're gathering in Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire, Jew and Gentile, and they're hearing the gospel in all these different languages. So how that actually worked remains a bit of a mystery. Because, for instance, were the Gentile Christians, you know, did they stay in the courtyard? Did they stay outside the temple? Did they kind of just skirt around you know, the edges? How did this actually work? We don't know for sure. 
But it speaks to the fact that even then when the church began, they're borrowing, so to speak, from Jewish schedule and tradition, but now seeing the fulfillment of those things in the Messiah. And so this early part of the church is kind of that brackish water. If you're a fisherman, right, and you fish, you have salt water or fresh water kind of come together, what they call brackish water, and you have elements of both, right? That's the early church. There's these Jewish components, these Gentile components coming in and forming the brackish water here of the church. And that will actually continue until about 70 AD, when if you know your history, the temple in Jerusalem is finally destroyed. It's destroyed by Rome, and what happens is that the Christians will evacuate and flee the city because they recognize the greater temple has come, namely Jesus. And so the destruction of the previous temple, though cataclysmic, isn't the end of the world. That Christ, the greater temple, had come. And so the Christians, many of them will actually flee the city, and that's really where you see the divide kind of forevermore happen between, between uh, the Jewish tradition and faith and then the church. It's this kind of unbreachable you know, chasm that, that develops. But I say all of that because you can see here the apostles taking those things from the old covenant, like the devotional prayer life that, that happened in the temple, but now applying it to the church, applying it to the believers who know the true temple of Christ Jesus. So there is this devotional regulated component. And I say all of that <laughs> Because it explains in our service why we do what we do. Why do we have every week that kind of prayer of invocation? And that confession, that confessional prayer. And the pastoral prayer. And the Lord's prayer. Again, because we see that God here, even in the early times, he actually works through these means of grace. That the Spirit will certainly work however he wants. The Spirit cannot be planned. The Spirit cannot be scheduled right? Which is why I'm always leery of churches that kind of schedule revivals, right? We're going to have a revival on, you know, February 28th. Wow, great. And I didn't realize the Spirit could be kind of booked, right? Or, or reserved, all right? Uh, kind of joking. Again, we can never limit the Spirit. He can work however He wants. But we also begin to see here that the Spirit actually works through these four ordained and established means of grace, which might seem so ordinary, But that's how God works. He works extraordinary things through ordinary means and mechanisms. So we come together then every Sunday and we pray, if you will, devotionally. We pray kind of scheduled, right, in these formats because then it shows our dependence on God, right? Because it it forms us. There's this liturgy, if you will, this rhythm in the service that over time begins to form our souls and form our hearts. And that's exactly how God works. I mean, think about even in your physical life. What is the liturgy of your day? I guarantee you it includes a couple meals, right? I guarantee you it includes sleep at the end of the day, right? There are these actual liturgical things that you are dependent upon These rhythms in your day, you are dependent upon for your life to actually continue and unfold. God works through those ordinary kind of scheduled things. The same thing is true here in the service and even in worship. That God works through the ordinary, uh, devotional, but dependent prayers of his people. 
But the second thing we, we see in this little section, again, the true church has apostolic teaching, the true church has prayer and sacrament. So we also see the sacrament here. And the sacrament we see in these verses is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. Again, we as Protestants uh, really only latch on to, if you will, uh, two practices that we want to call sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. There are other churches that might uh, try to list more than that, but we kind of limit ourselves to those two that were uh, commanded explicitly by Christ, that of baptism and that of the Lord's Supper. Those are the sacraments, if you will. Uh, And we've already seen baptism now happen in these early chapters of Acts. But here we see that second sacrament, the Lord's Supper. And it's alluded to, if you notice, in that phrase, the breaking of the bread, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now the breaking of bread can, of course, uh, speak to this fellowship component, right? Because people would actually gather in homes for the breaking of bread. They would gather in homes for, uh, for meals. But these meals were more than just ordinary meals. And we know that from, of course, places like in 1 Corinthians, where when Paul writes, he kind of gives direction of how these meals uh, should unfold. And actually, it's kind of terrifying, there's a, p- a portion even of 1 Corinthians, right, where people are uh, getting sick for taking those meals improperly. So there's something going on there that's more than just a meal, okay? There's this mystical, kind of mysterious um, components. These aren't just regular meals where bread is being broken. They're meals to commemorate, ultimately, the Lord's Supper. They're sacramental meals where, again, bread and wine uh, is given in memory of Jesus, and they're done with this regularity, if you notice, that, again, is instructive. And that's why we gather and do what we do. Again, if we can't uh, decide what to teach, if we are, are bound to the prayers given to us, right, then we're also bound, if you will, to how the early church worshiped. They would gather each and every Sunday and also partake of the table together, which is exactly why we do it. And again, it's formative for us, right? It's formative because every week when we gather, we hear again these words that remind us that we are welcome before the Lord's table. And we actually are having the gospel revealed to us. That's the question people always ask, right? How can I actually experience Christ now? You know, he, he's gone. He's ascended into heaven. Uh, he was here on earth. That would have been an incredible time to live and to, to encounter him. But now we live in this time between times where he arrived first and now he's going to eventually come back. But, you know, we can't, we can't access him. Uh, we, can't, we can't see and touch him. But we would actually say as Christians, well, that's not entirely true. You actually can access Christ where? At the table. At the table. That Christ reveals himself to us at the table. And you say, well, that sounds kind of Catholic, right? No, 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 no. No. We don't believe that the, the elements are being transformed. They're not being transubstantiated and and, and changed into something they're not. They're still ordinary bread, ordinary juice, all right? But if you were to go back and do it maybe some other time after service, go and look at Luke 24. When Jesus, after the resurrection, is with his apostles and some of his disciples, he's walking on the road to Emmaus, 
and he's teaching them, and he's speaking to them. But at the end of that chapter, it says that he was revealed to them in the breaking of the bread, that their hearts burned within them as they heard him teaching, but they didn't come to fully recognize and grasp all that he was to them and for them until he broke the bread, and it was as if the light went off in their heads. And the same thing is now true of us as Christians. We can come each and every week to the table, and God reveals again you know, through these tangible methods. Because my sermon might bore you. <laughs> my sermon might lose you from time to time. But what remains? The elements. I might go off on a rabbit trail. I might preach too long. Okay? But what happens? We come back at the end of the service to the table. And the table, again, reveals to us exactly what God has for us. It's the broken body of Christ and his shed blood that is ultimately our salvation, that is ultimately where all of our lives are staked. And so again, we have God revealed to us through these ordinary means. He reveals his extraordinary grace. And so again, I'm not going to go so far as to say that you know, we have to be in a church that does communion every week. Again, there's some freedom there in the church. But to be a true church, it should be a church that revolves at least regularly around the table. Because again, it's the place where God meets us. Literally, he meets us. Like you meet a friend for dinner and you pull up a chair at the table. God meets us at the table and says, you're mine and I'm yours. We're part of the same family bought by the precious blood of my son Jesus. And so again, it's an important thing that we can never kind of pass off or, 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 or just think of too ritualistically, or ah, aren't we kind of past that now? No, no. And so again, we see here uh, that the true church revolves around apostolic teaching. The true church revolves around prayer and sacrament, namely the Lord's table. And then finally, the true church is devoted to fellowship and care of its people. Fellowship and care of its people. If you notice, you begin to see this in verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. So again, you see this kind of fellowship aspect. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day. You see, the, the fellowship aspect here is pretty obvious, is it not? They're living life together. They're sharing things. They're, they're breaking bread in their homes. It's this very close-knit um, community. And of course, in that day and age, that was incredibly vital to their uh, survival, really. Not only uh, was it harder to make a living then, but as we know, this was a time of great and heightened persecution of God's people. In fact, it's only going to get worse from here uh, when the book of Acts closes. It's a heightened time of persecution. And so to be a Christian then was to be incredibly misunderstood, was to be thought of literally as an alien or an exile, as Peter will later say in his letters. And it was even to be persecuted perhaps at, at, at great lengths. And so to live in close-knit community, to live with our brothers and sisters in the church and to share everything uh, together, to share our lives together, 
was very, very important, was vital even. And I thought, isn't it interesting how perhaps over time and in different places the church has gotten away from that? And there are times where the Christian faith has become perhaps very individualized. Um, and even today, we could be guilty of that, right? You don't have to come to church. I'm very mindful of that. You can download a sermon online, right? You can stay in your house and hear better preaching than you're going to hear from me. You can hear the world's best preachers. Go on iTunes. Go on the internet. Have your pick, <laughs> right? You can download a sermon and, and stay, stay in your house by yourself. So we can have a very individualized Christianity. But perhaps, perhaps God moves cultures and societies in ways that actually bring us back to what we're supposed to look like. Because as I described the Roman Empire, is that not a little bit kind of how we feel today? To be a Christian, you feel like an alien. You feel like an exile. To be a Christian will more than likely result in heightened persecution, even in Western 21st century North America. It might look different. That persecution might take different forms. But we are clearly moving away from, right, some of our Christian moorings. Our culture is becoming increasingly um, unchurched. Our culture is becoming increasingly unchristian, even if that was ever only a name only. And so all those things lead to this idea that to be a Christian is to look very different, to look alien, to look outcasted. And so to counter those things, what do we do? We live life together. We live life in close-knit community where we can again come from our struggles and trials in the world and we can find refuge. We can find that fellowship that we need to again sustain ourselves through another week. We come with like-minded brothers and sisters. We once again rehearse the truths of our faith. And again, we are encouraged. So that fellowship, if you will, that fellowship aspect of the church has to remain, has to remain uh, important. So the question is, how can we do that better here at Lake Osborne? You know, how can we be in, in life together? Uh, how can you as a member here even help foster that? How can I as a pastor help foster that fellowship of living life together encouraging and bolstering each other uh, in the faith. But then there's also this other element of fellowship where we should care for each other. Where we should care for each other. So we don't just hang out, we don't just live life together, but we actually like proactively care for each other. It's intentional and it's radical. And you can see that in those verses where it talks about the believers having all things in common, you know, selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to those who had need. Well, as you know, this is one of those verses and one of those passages where a lot of debate has raged, a lot of ink has been spilled, and people ask, does this mean the Bible uh, encourages, like, socialism? Is that what's happening here? Does the Bible here encourage, you know, like, like communism, where there's, you know, everybody, everything's in common, and there's, you know, is that what's happening all here? And of course, the answer is no, <laughs> okay? Now, the answer is actually a resounding no, and here's why. First, this passage has nothing to do with civic government, right? This passage is not speaking at all to the governments of societies, not speaking at all to the governments of countries or man, okay? That's the first thing. And secondly, to read kind of these, you know, modern-day uh, definitions of socialism or communism that would have, you know, eventually started from Karl Marx and, and people like that, 
is to kind of apply a term today, you know, now uh, anachronistically to another time period, you know, thousands of years before, and to just not even, not even be on the same page. It's just not even the same idea or concept. So the Bible does not teach socialism. You can rest assured of that. Okay? It does not teach communism. But what is it saying here then? What is the point then? That the believers were sharing all things in common and even going so far as selling their possessions to help those who were in need? It doesn't speak of communism. It doesn't speak of socialism. What does it speak of? It speaks of transformationalism, if you want to call it that. It speaks of people who experienced the grace of God. It, it speaks of people who were so acutely attuned to the reality that God had given up the throne of heaven to come down for them. That God hadn't spared anything but gave his all to bless us and to save us. That God, you know, uh, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, considered equality with God nothing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took the form of a servant and he gave everything to us. He held nothing back that we might be saved and redeemed. And so these are people who, again, are not subscribing to some kind of, you know, uh, late 19th century, 20th century form of government that's going to come later. These are not people who are, this is not even a passage about civic government, but it's a passage about the heart change that occurs in believers when we actually reflect on what we've been given in the gospel and how graciously God has given to us. It has a way then of changing our hearts that we then embody that same generosity to others. To others. And of course that means our community. And you could see a picture of that, like I said, even yesterday here on our campus. We were trying to be generous and benevolent and and giving to our community. But it starts even before that here in the church that we take care of each other by being generous with each other, by by being attuned to each other's needs, and if we can, you know, meeting those needs. Wherever we can give of ourselves and sacrifice of ourselves for the good of a brother or a sister, that's what happens here. And so again, it's not a, not a, not a, a reference to, you know, civic governmental strategies or, or political philosophies, It's a reference to the heart change that occurs in the Christian when we really understand the grace of God that has come to us and then we seek to be a conduit of that grace um, to others. We count others' needs above our own. We care for each other as Christ cared for us. And so the, the marks of the church, again, that we see here, apostolic teaching, prayer and sacrament, fellowship and care, of each other. And the amazing thing, and we'll close with this, the amazing thing is that if you notice, there wasn't then beyond those things like an outreach strategy. Did you notice that? When you read those verses, there wasn't like a verse that then came later and said, well, then, and, then, and then beyond that, the church had their outreach plan, which it looked like this. And there were, you know, it was like, Right? Like a, there was a formula you had to learn, and there was a script you had to learn, and there was a, you know, and you'd go out and do this. No, no, no. That's all great. But what's happening? The amazing thing is that the outreach strategy of the church then was what? To be the church. <laughs> but to be it well. To do it well. And so what's happening is that, you know, here they are, this countercultural, radical group of people who are doing these very things. Uh, 
building their lives on the gospel, preaching the gospel, not watering it down, not substituting it, but preaching the gospel, gathering for prayer and sacrament, and then loving each other radically. And what was the result of those things? There was this great outreach of the church because people noticed. (laughs) People noticed those things, and it says, and day by day the Lord added their number. And so again, what a great reminder for us here at Lake Osborne that again, our church looks different than it did in in these pages. It looks different from other churches, right? But our strategy remains the same. We simply do church, we do it well. We simply love each other well. We, We love the gospel with all of our hearts. And God takes care of the rest. This may not be true of us. May we stay focused on the the marks of the church uh, and trust God uh, to give the growth. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for its relevance, Lord. We thank you that though it was written so long ago, we can see in these pages uh, our own experience. We can see, Lord, our own experience even in the church. That times change and places change and names change, but certain things uh, remain. And Lord, that is the need uh, for the gospel. That is the need for us to, to build our lives on the sure foundation of Christ. And so Lord, again, would you bless us as a church father? Would you lead us forward in faith this year? That again, we might be uh, a place where uh, the marks of your grace are found. And Lord, would you bless us as individual Christians who make up this church? Would you guide us, Lord? Would you direct us? Would you again use us as your vessels and your ambassadors? And Lord, perhaps in those times where we're discouraged, would you remind us that we are yours, that we are your children, that we have been bought, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but we've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. So we love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.